Well, hi everybody. Welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bill Whittle. Uh, for those of you watching on uh, YouTube, you know, sometimes it's it's good that you're not here. It's uh, it's it's kind of like parents who let their children sleep through catastrophes like earthquakes or whatever. Uh, we are 40 minutes late instead of six. Uh, and um, we had to uh, reboot the computer like nine times. Actually, the, the, the Mac Pro I use... Uh, made noises that the Mac Pro has never made before. Never. It usually does a little chime, does it? This one went ah, 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 and then it just died and rebooted again. <sighs> anyway, hope everyone's doing well. It's uh, warm in here. Um, any, uh, has anybody noticed the, the audio being any um, better? Uh, just because I took out a uh, USC cord. I've got a, a new mic that's coming. It should have been here today. I was hoping we'd have it for tonight. But um, but uh, I don't, so we'll see. Anyway, um, it's good to be here. A uh, couple quick things. It's, it's really warm in here. I don't know why, but it is. Um, so after the four-hour epic last time, I think we'll probably keep this one relatively brief. Uh, but a couple things to talk about. First of all, uh, I had a just a jolly surprise. Uh, when we did the show where we were showing the um, the uh, artificial intelligence pictures of, of uh, Jack the Ripper. And I was talking about Charles Lechmere, and I got an email from um, from Krister Holgren, who's the author of the book about Charles uh, Lechmere. And I was looking forward to talking to him sometime in the future anyway, so that was, that was great. Um, uh, I just admire his work so much, and just having somebody uh, come, you know, uh, come in from was just, yeah, here's the guy. It was, it was tr tremendous. We've been in, I've had, we've sent a lot of emails back and forth since then. Um, and he told me a, a story about the discovery. It's not about, uh, not about Jack the Ripper or Lechmere or anything, but he told me about the discovery that is, I think probably the most interesting thing I've heard in the entire uh, Jack the Ripper saga. However, uh, I asked him, I, the, I can tell you what I asked him. I said, well, how did you feel when you first saw the photograph of Lechmere after you've been looking for him for 15, 20 years? And he told me, and that story is unbelievable, but I just realized that um, he didn't put it in the book. And so I'm going to ask for his permission to tell it, and I'll tell it next time if I can. But uh, anyway, it was, it, it's really, really great. It's cool, really, really cool when things like that happen. Uh, let's see. Um, just one uh, little thing, I guess, that caught my interest. It's not science fiction, it's just plain science, but uh, I've talked a little bit before about the, um, I've actually heard people call this the rare earth theory now, uh, but it's the idea that, um, that earth and life, and especially intelligent life, is much, 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 much rarer than we thought it would be. And so I'm just going to go down that road because there have been two more developments along that front that make it even tougher. So just as a quick recap, back when I was just a wee lad, I got into astronomy in 1972, started working at the planetarium in 73, and we did a show that had something to do with Barnard's star, which is a red dwarf star. It's the second closest star after um, Proxima Centauri system. And... Even as early as the 
mid to late 70s, they thought they had detected a little bit of a wobble. It's a small star, so planets orbiting it, you know, the, the center mass is not quite so big. And there was some speculation that there might be a planet or two, I think it was, around Barnard's star. And this was just crazy exciting news, unbelievably exciting news. And um, and so, you know, the, the thing, exoplanets, do we have do we have planets? Somebody pointed out to me, there's something called the, the Drake equation. And this is an indication of how far along my personal uh, journey and, and ability to think critically is concerned. So the Drake equation was put together by a guy named Drake in the 70s, I want to say, maybe it was the late 60s. He was trying to figure out the number of technological uh, in, uh, civilizations in the galaxy, uh, which would give us an indication of how many to expect out there. And basically what he said was, well, the first variable is how many stars have planets, and the second one was how many stars have planets in the habitable zone, the next one was how many of those have life, and the next one was how many of those have intelligence, and how many of those have, have, have technological intelligence, how many of those kill, each, kill themselves, blah, 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 blah. The Drake equation. And, and I remember looking at that and talking about it and saying, um, Wow, this is this is awesome. This is great. This finally gives us an idea. And then somebody pointed out to me the obvious, which is the Drake equation is utterly useless. And the reason it's utterly useless is because it's got what six, seven variables, and we don't know any of them. We don't know any of them. It it would be something that you could do very simple math on if you had the variables, but we don't know any of them. We don't know what the percentage of stars with planets is, although we have a much better idea now than we did then. But we don't know what percentage, all of it. So there's like six, seven different variables, and there's nothing there. And and I remember everybody being so impressed with, well, if you put in these numbers, then it could be 100 million. You know, if you put in these numbers, it'd be 100 billion. And okay, all right. But what it was, was it was, it was, it was something that looked scientific, felt scientific, and to some degree was scientific, but it was utterly useless absolutely useless. So let's just fast forward a little bit out of the 70s and we've got radio telescopes out there and we're looking for signal. We're looking for sign of intelligent life. We have a real shock and a scare there for a couple of weeks. We get a signal that's going click, 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 click. Absolutely metronomic, perfect artificial signal, it seemed like, you know. Uh, and and when they first saw it, they wrote LGM, question mark, Little Green Men. Uh, that was the discovery of the first pulsar, which is a star that spins very, very rapidly and sends a stream of plasma our way several times a second. And we discovered a bunch more pulsar, uh, pulsars. So that wasn't it. And then I remember in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, we were talking about how how we were looking at the, the sky through a cocktail straw that we would pick what we thought was a likely star, and then we had to point a, a, a radio telescope at it. And then we had to essentially just had to twist the dial and listen in on every one of the analog frequencies. And it took forever. And and they said at this rate, it could take centuries to, to, to scan the sky. And then next thing you know, another five, 10 years pass. And now we're digitally scanning all of these frequencies pretty much at once. And our ability to take in all this data and process it is great. And there was that period, which I thought was really cool, where they had this uh, screensaver called SETI at home, where you would download the screensaver and then the screensaver would send you packets of raw data and your computer, everybody's thousands, millions probably, of individual PCs would crunch the, the data and send it back to them. And they'd send the same packet out to hundreds if not thousands of people. 
And if they found an anomaly, then they personally would go back to the raw data and look at that. That was great. And it was fun. And it felt like any second now, man, any second. I remember having that screensaver and I remember when, when it would come on, I said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sit here for just, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour, two hours, four, five, six hours, watching for the spike, like, like it's gonna, you know, it's gonna come in on my watch. I think everybody had that feeling. I think it's why it was so successful. Nothing. So let's take a look at where we are now. Now we have the ability to scan multi-frequencies in large swathes of the sky. We can, we can really take in an awful lot of, uh, of data looking for radio signals and stuff, and we haven't found anything. And we have now had such a big scoop in terms of taking a look at things that it's beginning to look like we've pretty much covered the entire sky, and we haven't found anything. Um, so that is in itself interesting. But here's when my thinking about this began to change, and it was just began to change based on uh, advances in, in astronomy and also based on um, my ability to, uh, to, you know, weigh data. So uh, I, I want to talk about how rare the Earth is and how unlikely it is. So in the days of the Drake equation, we thought that, okay, how many stars have, have planets? Okay, how many of those planets are in the habitable zone? Well, it turns out now, given our technology, by the way, there's a satellite up there called Gaia, which is just checking huge chunks of the sky. We'll eventually, very soon, be able to have a, a complete 3D map of every visible star in the galaxy and, and more than visible stars. Um, First time chat from uh, Thessing. God created a huge universe because it's cool. It is cool. And, and here's, and it's not just, it's, it, it, this will change the way you think about things, change the way I think about things. So st stay and listen for the science, uh, stay for the science and then, what, what's that expression? Come for the science and then, and then stay for the, for the metaphysics. Um, so we're looking, all right? So now, we, now we've got, we've detected thousands of exoplanets. We get new ones all the time. They're just coming in like over the transom. So now we're starting to get some data on the first two of these things. We're starting to have some rough idea of how many stars have planets, and it appears to be the answer is pretty much all of them, or certainly most of them. And, and we have certainly discovered numerous planets that are in the correct orbital position as far as temperature for water. That's really what you're looking for. Can you find a, a, a world where the, where the surface temperature hovers between 0 and 100 C. That's a good time to use the, the, uh, the otherwise ridiculous uh, 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 metric system when you're talking about science. So yeah, so 0 is the freezing point of water, 100 is the boiling point of water, that's cool. But uh, we have found a number of planets that fit there too. But then we're seeing things, and I remember this very clearly, when these exoplanets started to come in, we started seeing things that I thought were absolutely physically impossible. We were seeing planets the size of Jupiter in extremely, extremely close orbit, kind of thing where they, they would orbit, you know, once every three or four days. I mean, it was just, and, and so we developed this planet type from observation. We just found these hot Jupiters. Now, when I was 
going through this whole uh, astronomy education back in the 70s and stuff, the theory was pretty pretty simple and, and pretty logical and clear. And the theory was this. You get this giant cloud of dust that coalesces out of nebulae from previously exploded novas and supernovas. Okay, and all this matter is essentially uniform. So far, so good. And it starts to, to coalesce under its own gravity, starts to pick up angular momentum, starts to spin. The center gets more and more condensed and so on. And eventually the, the gravitational pressure on the center causes a nuclear reaction. And the amount of mass that's there when this happens essentially determines whether you've got a big, fast-burning blue star or a long, long, long-living uh, red star, M star. Okay, so far so good. But the theory then was that once the sun ignited in the middle of, of any of these protoplanetary disks, and we're seeing we've seen those observationally, we know they're there. The the theory was that the that the solar wind would push all the lighter elements out of the solar out away from the sun. So this is what we saw in our solar system. We have Mercury, which is just a rock, extremely metallic. Venus is a big rock. Earth is a bigger rock. Mars is a small rock. And by the time you get out to Jupiter, the, the understanding was, okay, it's far enough away from the sun so that it's able to retain hydrogen, helium, methane, ammonia. So far, so good. And then along comes a hot Jupiter in, in this, like in Mercury's orbit. And, and everything just goes to hell. And now we get to the part that's interesting. Although I think it's all interesting. Our solar system is arrayed in such a way that if you look at it as the only one, which is what we've done for all of our history prior to just a decade or two ago, you can come up with a logical explanation for, for, for this kind of thing. But when you find hot Jupiters, something's, something's wrong. So let's take a little moment and try and really appreciate just how rare planet Earth is and life on Earth is. So we have a sun, that's a start. We've got a planet orbiting inside the Goldilocks zone, which I've never particularly liked, but it's not too hot, not too cold, so Earth is there. Great! This should be happening all throughout the universe, right? Well, I'll tell you the new stuff first, and then I'll go through the litany of, of the existing things that are necessary for intelligent life on this planet. Two things I learned uh, since we talked about this last are we are now able to, to, with a high degree of accuracy, essentially run the clock on the solar system backwards. And what we found was that as the solar system was forming, Jupiter, which is obviously the, by far the most massive of the planets, in the early, early stages of the, of the still forming solar system, Jupiter started moving inward towards the sun. And Jupiter's gravity is what prevented uh, a planet forming in the asteroid belt orbit, but these guys are pushing the limits on this now. They said Jupiter started to get so close to the sun, its orbit was decreasing, started coming in so close to the sun that Jupiter essentially ate two-thirds of Mars. That, that, that the stuff that Mars should have gotten and would have gotten if you just have this kind of natural formation of the solar system, that Jupiter basically came in and not only vacuumed up the the planet that would have been the asteroids, but vacuumed up most of the stuff that was going to make Mars. And then, this is the current theory, and then just as Jupiter's coming in to become a hot Jupiter and take Earth with it, right, take the whole, just take all of that stuff with it, then 
Saturn forms in a way that Saturn's gravity essentially is the second most gravitational object in the solar system outside of the sun. So it's the sun, Jupiter, and Saturn. So Saturn forms and, and Saturn's gravitational pull actually stops Jupiter from going in any deeper, pulls it back out again, more or less to its present position. Now that that is exceedingly unlikely, right? E exceedingly unlikely. And, and it's, and it's not just unlikely it, the, 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 the sidebars of it are, are crazy. If, if Jupiter hadn't come in, there would have been so many asteroids out there that we would have been taking extinction level events on planet Earth every couple hundred years. It cleaned out the solar system. So if it hadn't done that, we wouldn't have uh, any kind of sophisticated life on Earth because we'd just be taking the meteor, the, the asteroid hits again and again and again. But if it had come any closer, if something hadn't stopped it at the last minute, it would have turned Earth into Mars. It would have sucked most of the matter away from the Earth, and Earth would have been too small to be able to retain a metallic core. And we'll get to that. So, so there's this gigantic, enormous, happy piece of luck where here comes Jupiter, and it's sucking up all those asteroids, and it's coming in, it starts eating Mars, and then at the last second, just when it's about to come and finish off our little blue planet before it even forms, Saturn yanks it back out again. Okay, if that's necessary, then that makes Earth exceedingly rare, and it, it may in fact be necessary. Now we get to the second thing. Some convincing evidence, obviously, that, that water uh, flowed on Mars back billions of years ago, and, and very likely that if, there is, if life is uh, just a natural process, and I'll get to that in a minute, but conditions on Mars were uh, lifeable, right? But billions of years ago, Mars died. Its water evaporated or froze into, in the permafrost, and its atmosphere got stripped away. Why? Why was it? It didn't change its mass. It didn't get any bigger or any smaller. So what changed on Mars to make Mars at one point have an atmosphere and free water on the surface, which, by the way, having standing water on the surface doesn't just require the right temperature. It also requires enough atmospheric pressure. You can't have liquid water in the... Mars's atmosphere is as close to a vacuum as we can get on Earth. It's 1% of the Earth's atmosphere. So, so there was much more air pressure and, and the temperatures were right. And then it just plain dried up. We saw all the riverbeds. There's apparently waterfalls that once existed on Mars that are 12,000 feet high. Where this, we, we can see the channels. This lake went into it 12,000 feet high. That's practically almost the height of Everest, half, more than half. That's a big waterfall. So what happened to Mars? Well, what happened to Mars was Mars was too. Dave Big Booty got it just before I just before I open my mouth to say it. When Jupiter came in and sucked up a lot of the mass that was going to make up Mars, when Mars formed, it's a quarter the size of the Earth, and just like anything else, it's basically a, it's basically a surface area issue. The bigger something is, the easier it is to retain heat on the inside because as the thing enlarges, the surface area grows by the square, but the volume grows by the cube. So. So Mars was so small that the core, the liquid core of Mars, the metallic core, that was generating the magnetic field cooled down because there wasn't enough of Mars to keep it going. Cooled down, stopped rotating, and when that metallic 
liquid metallic core stops rotating, the magnetic field, the magnetic field that protects planets from the solar wind on Mars disappeared. And without that magnetic field to deflect the, the high charged solar particles and cosmic rays, without that magnetic shield around Mars, the solar wind eventually just started chewing away the atmosphere, just knocking it away. And we wouldn't have life on Earth if it weren't for the magnetosphere, for the metallic field that the Earth generates is, is what protects Earth from the sun's uh, radiation. If we didn't have a magnetic field, we wouldn't have an atmosphere, we wouldn't have water. Okay, so far so good, right? Well, all right, well, we, whatever the one in a billion chance was that means Jupiter cleans out the solar system and eats Mars but doesn't eat Earth because Saturn comes along. Okay, well, at least here we are, right? So we've got our, our magnetic uh, core. Now we come to the second piece of new data that I heard in the last couple of weeks. Uh, scientists at the University of Science uh, have determined that looking back on, on core samples and stuff, that somewhere recently, relatively recently, 500 million years ago, that's, you know, uh, what's that? I mean, it's maybe 10% of the Earth's age, 15% ago, so in the, in the end, towards the, the, the latest part of the, of the deal. We found out that the magnetic field on Earth was failing rapidly, and that it was going down, and, and they, they did the theoretical work and, and so on, and what they found was Earth was, was experiencing the same thing that Mars had experienced just billions of years later. We're bigger, so it took longer, but essentially the Earth's metallic core was starting to cool to the point where it was no longer in motion. If it's not in motion, it's not a dynamo. So Earth's magnetic core is starting to go the way of Mars, and if this process continues, then we aren't here, and, and neither are the dinosaurs or any of that stuff. And then they said, and this part I need to go back and, and, and look at a little more closely, but these guys said that as this Earth's metallic core was cooling, some kind of a crystalline formation occurred that, that basically protected the inner core, that even though the outer core stopped moving and kind of froze, something happened at the last minute. That's basically what they said. Something happened at the last minute to keep the Earth's molten core going. And, and they said, they just, just sheer luck is what they said, that just the size of the core and all this other stuff, if it were a little bigger, a little, little smaller, wouldn't work. And so then it's like, oh, okay. So how many of these planets that we see out there have, we know some, many of them have atmospheres. Jupiter has an atmosphere. So two big coincidences there, huge, really unusually rare things. Jupiter comes in, cleans out the, the asteroids from the, uh, from the asteroid belt eats uh, most of Mars, and then by miracle, Saturn pulls it back out before it comes in and destroys the Earth as a habitable planet. And secondly, okay, Earth survives and cools and everything's on its way. Mars freezes and loses its magnetic field. Earth is in the process of doing that. We can tell that from the, from the geological records from 500 million years ago. And then something happened that allowed it to keep turning some sort of a formation. Like I said, I need to get into the details of that. So that's extremely unusual and lucky. And now we get to the stuff that I'd, I'd been talking about for a long time, which I will just recap briefly. Mercury doesn't make sense. Mercury is extremely metallic. 
and and does not mercury didn't form where mercury is that seems to be the the conclusion it's a beginning to appear like mercury is so metallic that it, it that it was the molten core of a much larger planet so what happened to the rest of that large planet well we don't really know but we do know that billions of years ago before the earth had a moon we were a larger planet we got hit by another large planet about the size of mars and it hit the earth and it essentially knocked the crust off the earth all of the lighter elements the silicates stuff on the outside it came in at a glancing angle like this peeled peeled a lot of this light stuff off the earth which then went into orbit around the earth and became the moon so the moon is dead because the moon has no metallic core because the moon is very very low in metals and the reason the moon's low in metals is because the moon is the result of having taken the top of the earth off and put it into orbit around the earth now if you follow this through what you realize is if enough light rocky rocky matter was peeled off by this one in a trillion collision to form the moon that would leave you with a higher concentration of metallics back on the on the home planet where we live so without the moon's impact it's very likely the earth would never have had anything like the ability to go out and find iron or, or copper or anything like that this stuff would have been buried 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 so what's the chance of the moon forming well i've seen simulations of it i've tried simulations of it it is virtually impossible to create the moon. Um, it's virtually impossible. If you hit it too straight, it just blows the whole thing up. If you hit it at less of an angle, it forms rings. And, and it, is, it is unbelievably narrow little band to get that moon. Okay, but, but that happened too. So now we're, now we're three big coincidence, three big lucky, lucky events into it. So just because we've talked about this before, I'll just speed this up. So why is it important that we have the moon? Well, first of all, the moon takes an awful lot of the asteroids that Jupiter uh, didn't get. Not just on the moon. You see all the craters. Every single crater on the moon was coming for us, and the moon just blocked it. But And it's hard to visualize unless you've done it. I've seen a little Java uh, app that, that showed it. But because the moon is, is in orbit around the Earth, if you, if you shoot an asteroid into that Earth-Moon system, the gravity, the moving gravity of the moon tends to either accelerate it out or slow it down enough to, to uh, basically deflect it. So without the moon, we are taking extinction-level events much, much, much more frequently, right? Chiluxilub-type events, dinosaurs gone. And instead of that happening once every... 500 million years or whatever the case may be, it's happening every 50,000 years, which means not only do you not get technological life, you don't even get complex life. You just keep resetting the clock. It starts to come up, chick, boom, and it starts to come up, boom. So there's that. So the moon protects the Earth from strikes. The moon's gravity, such a large object, it's a double planet that we live on, such a large object essentially keeps the earth from from tipping over when you spin a top the axis of the top precesses and our our axis does that too but eventually over time the axis of the earth would have would have just flipped over and keep flipping over and we have evidence that that happened to other planets if the earth's axis flips over 
then there's going to be tens of thousands of years where one side of the of the planet is getting all the radiation it's going to just bake and the other side is going to be frozen solid if the moon's not there to stabilize our rotation we don't get complex life on earth or any other planet for that matter all right now you've got that problem so here we are on earth and everything's uh, copacetic we got four now four big 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 extremely unusual events now we look at at the evolution of life how did life colonize the land well the life colonized the land by by um mud skippers right i mean these fish that, that would crawl out of tidal basins and spend a little bit of time in the air and there was food out there and so natural selection did what it does and 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 that's how we got land animals because of because of these these tidal tidal in uh, ecosystems but if you don't have a moon you don't have tides and if you don't have tides you don't have the ability for this fish to just climb out of a rock and just start jumping up there the the only reason you get that is because there are environments where it's it's water 99% of the time air 1% of the time and he swims a little further and then it goes and it's and it's regular you see you you can't get to life on earth without tides you can't have tides without a moon and a big moon by the way if we had the moons of of uh mars we wouldn't know it we would have no no tidal activity at all none so there's that then there is the what i believe to be uh i saw the the uh, the solar eclipse in 2017 and i've been looking forward to seeing a solar eclipse for most of my life um and uh and then i i thought well it's going to be cool and then i saw it and it's and it's not cool it's 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 mind-boggling it is simply mind-boggling and i remember when that thing ended my first thought was i don't know when the next eclipse is going to be but i'm going i'm going uh and so there's compelling evidence that the mayan calendar and a number of other calendars which essentially means the beginning of mathematics and the beginning of observational astronomy the beginning of science really was predicated on people's burning desire to predict when the next one of these amazing things will occur the mayans for them it was was everything so so there's that you don't get that without the moon and this is the greatest cosmic coincidence of all if the if the moon is much smaller i mean a little tiny bit smaller or a little bit tiny a little bit further away just a little bit a little bit then the moon moves in front of the sun but you get something called an annular eclipse where the moon's not completely blocking the sun out and so you don't get the whole kind of darkness at noon and the corona so if the moon's a little bit smaller or a little bit farther away we don't get the effect if the moon was a little bit bigger or a little bit closer it would completely occlude the sun and you wouldn't see the corona or anything so so it's the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun and 400 times closer than the sun that's unbelievable and if you don't have that i don't know if you have astronomy and then the final thing i'll say is this i was walking out to the car the other night uh, with natasha and i was looking up at the full moon as i often do and i said to myself you son of a... not, not in a bad way you know like you know we've been there before and we're and we're coming back what would what would the space program look like without the moon going to the moon is crazy difficult but 
going to Mars is hundreds of times more difficult. And without the moon there, I don't know if you if you get it, right? I don't know I don't know if it happens. The there's a planet visible in the sky. All the other planets are dots. Jupiter is a dot. Saturn's a dot. Mars, all of them. They're just dots, but here's this gigantic thing. It's showing phases and, and it's got features on it and stuff. It's no, no coincidence that Arthur C. Clarke named the, the, the proto-human ape in 2001. His name was Moonwatcher. He was the first thinker. He's, he's like, oh, without a moon, you, you don't have that, that curiosity. And there was one other thing here. Hang on a second. Just flew out of my head. I'll come right back again. Um, oh, wasn't that? Hang on. Talk amongst yourselves. Oh, boy, what was it? One more thing uh, about the moon that uh, that had occurred to me that without it you don't get. Oh, the, here's the last of the of the narrow little slots that you need to get to spaceflight. Let's say, and and look, in a in a, in a universe with two hundred billion galaxies with two hundred billion stars, this kind of thing will happen again, but not very often. So here's the, here's the final thing. What if intelligence had evolved in, in other types of creatures? Like, for example, there's some evidence that the dinosaurs were getting smarter, and if, and if the big asteroid impact hadn't wiped them out, what if there had been a bipedal, intelligent dinosaur? Does that mean you get technology? If you have intelligent creatures in the ocean, you don't get technology because you can't build technology in the ocean, right? So that's off the table. What if a different kind of land animal other than humans were the ones that involved, that, that evolved intelligence on a planet? I think about this frequently. Everything that we take for granted, that we do, trajectories, orbits, flying an airplane, rolling inverted, flying fast, flying low, climbing high, seat of the pants stuff, you turn left, you turn right, all of the, all of the inner ear, all of this stuff, all of it is here in humans because our, our proto-human ancestors lived in the trees. If you don't live in the trees, flying is terrifying and motion really is terrifying. And disorientation is terrifying. And it, it, it's so unnerving that it, it just makes me think it's impossible. Traveler Universe had a, a race called the Kakri, which I thought was really great. They were, in, they were intelligent herbivores. And, uh, and, and because they're herbivores, they're not swinging from trees. They're not throwing baseballs. They can't do it. They don't have, they're, they're, they're just not set up for it. And all of the things that make us so adaptable in space and so on our willingness to, to sit in tiny little enclosed capsules and be weightless. If you don't come from the trees, weightlessness is a, it, it's game over, right? But we're used to it. We're, we're, we're wired for it. In fact, we're so wired for it that we go to considerable money and, and, and uh, time to build roller coasters to give us that sensation of high Gs and low Gs, which goes back a long, long way. That's why it's fun. So when you take all of this stuff together, you really have to ask yourself, it's not, it's not surprising that we don't hear any messages out there. It's surprising, in fact, it's amazing that there's any messages at all. And there's one 
final thing, which may in fact be the most important thing. My friend Jim talks about this all the time, and that is DNA. What DNA does is, it's beyond amazing. Hundreds of thousands of extremely complex proteins folding themselves every second in every one of the trillions of cells that you have. If you've ever seen animation of how DNA replicates, it is honest to God. It, it, it don't, you cannot look at it and not think of, of a factory. This comes up, moves over here, swing, mechanical, repeated kind of thing. If you were trying to build the basis for life, you're trying to design it, making robots, this is what, this is what you'd have. Uh, Tiki Rocket says DNA is a language. It is, and what and what Jim argues is it's not only a language; it's actually it's actually the only symbol in nature. It's the only thing that's a symbol. It's like if we have a letter, we all agree that that letter represents something, and we all know what the letter A looks like, and we know what it sounds like. But it's not real. The A isn't real. It's just a, it's a symbol. But D, but DNA is real. Now I'd be very curious to know if the if the group mind knows anything about this. I am unaware of what the predecessor of DNA is. Where did DNA come from? This extraordinarily, extraordinarily, unbelievably complex mechanism is what makes life possible. I had it pointed out to me, and this was kind of a shock too. It's like nowhere in nowhere on earth is DNA, is DNA manufactured? It's replicated, but it's not. But it's not manufactured. Now, DP Woman says, "Why does DNA have to have a predecessor?" Well, the entire theory of natural selection and, and evolution, from from simple to complex, is predicated upon having a simpler example. The first land animal wasn't the cheetah. It was a, it was a it was a fish with, with basically you know vestigial uh, gills and, and very, very primitive lungs. So, so where, where does this unbelievably complex molecule get built from? It's not like there's a, it's not like DNA is, is the version nine. It's like, it's, it's perfect and complex and, and miraculous out of the gate. And I can't see this I don't know. I'd like to talk to molecular biologists about this. But so it's like, okay, well, we have amino acids and so on and so forth. And yeah, and they're all in the soup and all the, and all the rest of it. Great. Fantastic. And then along comes DNA. And, uh, and then here comes life and natural selection. Okay, I, I have no problem with natural selection. But the more I look into it, the more I begin to... Well, the pre precursor of DNA is RNA. Okay, so, we're, so how do you get RNA, astronaut? RNA is not salt, you know? RNA is a... Is, is an extraordinarily, extraordinarily, it was just luck, but this is the point. I thought it was just luck my whole life, but I don't see how, it's not a question of likely or unlikely. It's a question of where, how do you get to that complexity if that complexity is the requirement for life in the first place? How do you get there? How do you get to DNA? Space group plus lightning equals RNA. Okay, okay. I thought it was space group plus, plus lightning is amino acids. And amino acids and RNA are two entirely different things. Proteins are explainable, but hundreds of thousands of proteins that are folding constantly, 
in order to replicate itself. That's a little tougher to explain. So all I'm saying, look, all I'm saying is this. I'm not saying that I know it that it didn't happen because uh, I don't know. Okay, amino acids to proteins, proteins to RNA, RNA to DNA. Great. How does that happen? How do you get how do you get RNA from proteins? What's the what happens? You got a soup of proteins. I'll grant you all of that. Fantastic. You got a soup of, pro, of proteins swimming around, and now, how do you get from there to RNA? How, how do you get there? It, it's it is so, the procedure is so complex. Yes, DNA and RNA are proteins, but they are, but they are operators. They are, they are operators. They're not inert. They're, they're operating on other proteins and creating all of this stuff. According to the RNA, this is Marisha Dar, according to the RNA world theory, the first RNAs were made using free-floating nucleotides that emerged in a primordial soup of molecules. So far, so good. They bonded together to make strands of RNA that weren't very stable and degraded quickly. They, well, maybe, maybe. And if they keep bonding together, eventually they, they fit together in such a way as to create a stable version, and then that goes and, and becomes the, maybe, maybe. All I'm saying is this, this is not, this is not a, 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 a paint by numbers issue. There's nothing about this that is automatic, all of it is extremely unlikely. And you have to ask yourself, if you find another form of life in the universe, and I'm making the case against intelligent civilizational life, not, not any kind of life, but if you find another kind of life, this is speculation, I'm not trying to say anything. Let's say we go to, let's not even go to Mars. Let's say we go to Alpha Centauri and we find life we find pond scum uh, in orbit around Proxima Centauri. This is an open question. I don't have the answer for this. Does that pond scum reproduce through DNA? Not something like DNA. DNA. It's not our DNA, but is, but is it is it is it based on four base pairs and the same four base pairs, or is it using something else? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that my former um, Blythe assumption that this stuff is just, yeah, billions, trillions, trillions of these things everywhere. It's just nothing to it, right? It's just simple, simple, just simple. It's not simple. It's not simple. DNA RNA is encoded information, says Coffee, Coffee Shinado. Yes, that's right, it is. Uh, GK Masterson says it's just random chemicals. I I'm not convinced. They don't behave like random chemicals. If you watch animations of how DNA functions, that's not a chemical reaction in the same way that mixing mercury and sodium would be, for example. Um, I don't know. I'm just saying uh, that whether it's a, a, a natural process or not, yes, I do remember my bird analogy um, uptick. Uh, this might be um, patterns emerge from the noise when they happen upon something stable. 
Okay, well, that's that's basically how how it uh, the, the theory goes. But DNA goes back a long way, and RNA goes back further. And there is no evidence that I'm aware of of anything prior to RNA that was a halfway point between RNA and, and proteins or anything after DNA that is more complex. You see what I'm saying? It kind of arrives. And and I find that, you know, unusual. So there it all is, right? Here's the one thing that, that I think, uh, yeah, I understand billions of years, uh, time scales that we can't fathom. Well, here's something else we can't fathom. We can't fathom the complexity of what goes on in DNA every single second of every single one of your cells. We can't fathom it. What We have dedicated computers, and we tried to do this actually, tried to disperse the same exact way as we did SETI that we started this, this discussion with. We, we have supercomputers trying to calculate how to fold proteins into these compact spaces. Just billions of iterations trying to find out how this works. <coughs> and it's doing it, and it's doing it at a rate and at a complexity that is mind-boggling. So at the very least, at the very least, what, how it got there is really not even the point. The fact of the matter is, it is doing something that is so remarkable. It's so remarkable that we had better step back and appreciate the wonder of it. We better just step back and say, good Lord. We, this guy, Yuval or whatever his name was, the guy did mention on the technocracy thing, the guy who's sure that we're all going to be replaced by, you know, immortal silicon robots and, and, and all the rest of this stuff. Uh, he said that basically life is just a series of chemical algorithms. I don't, I'll just keep rolling on this. Why not? This doesn't belong to me. It belongs to my friend Jim. And I'm not going to steal it from him. I'm just going to tell you some of his thoughts. We don't know where memory is. We don't, in the head, we can't find it where it's stored. And not only that, we don't even know what memory is. We had this conversation a couple weeks ago. What are we doing right now? I'm thinking thoughts coming out of my mouth automatically. I don't know how this sentence is going to end. It could end with the polar bear. Who knows? So, so consciousness is is something that we really don't understand. Now, Marsh Dark says, where's memory in the computer? Well, in the computer, it's in the RAM chips, but we don't see those in the brain. We see the corpus callosum, which connects the two lobes of the brain, is by far the most complex network on the planet. It makes the most complex man-made networks into a laughingstock. So you've got this tremendously complex system that is running all the time. And that's an important thing to remember. When I, t typically we, today was the first time we've had a major computer problem in years and we had to, we started the show half an hour late, 40 minutes late, because I had to reboot the computer nine times. But that's an interesting point. That computer is made out of silicone parts and so on. Silicon, not silicone, silicon. And when I turn it off, those parts are still there. And the memory is preserved and all the rest of it. And I give it power again, it comes back on. But, but the human brain never turns off. It, 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 can, it can sleep, but if it turns off, it all dies. Now, I understand that it's biological and it decays in that way, 
But what I'm saying is, is that this, this memory, this consciousness is something that is lit and then has to stay lit. And when it stops being lit, you can't light it again. That's kind of remarkable. Um, so, so this, this thing that, that, you know, that computers are, are going to be able to, to think or that they're going to, you know, I've, I've seen transcripts of some of the Turing tests of recently, like within the last several months where, um, where, where I've, I've read the transcripts and the Turing test for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, who have never seen the stress free laundry before, because they talk about it pretty much any time, uh, is, is the idea of, from Alan Turing, who, who invented the, the, the modern computer. Uh, and he said that the test of whether something was intelligent or not would be if you could have a conversation with it for half an hour and not be able to tell whether or not it was a person, then that was a passable, practical definition of intelligence. Well, I've read the, these conversations that people have had with the computers and the Turing test, and I am not even close to being sold on this. Not even close. In fact, since the one, there is one area that I am, I would say that I am an expert in, that I have, there's one area, I'm an amateur astronomer, I'm an amateur uh, uh, historian, uh, um, um, all of those things. There's one thing that I would say I am ranked among the highest in the world with, and I, I and I say that without any uh, arrogance. It just just it seems just it's true. I am very 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 good with the English language. I I can see things in the English language that virtually nobody else can see because this is my toolbox. This is what I use every day. So it's, it's like me knowing if I was a carpenter and you know, knowing how a plane works and an awl and a chisel and all. Language is my tool, and when I look at these. When I look at these transcripts and I look at the flow of the conversation, because not just am I reading English, I'm writing it too, which means that my job is to take thoughts, convert them into language, commit that language to a computer screen, which will then eventually be committed to paper. An actor will decode those thoughts, add his own consciousness to it, will record that, and then we'll send it to you. And if I've done my job right, and the actor's done their job right, and the cinematographer's got it so it's not underexposed, you will then have an emotional reaction that I wanted you to have, which came from my head, through the actor, onto the screen, to you. An emotional reaction. So I know the ebb and flow of conversations. And when I look at these transcripts, I can, I can see it. I can feel it. There are, there are, I can see where the algorithm is doing something to mimic like a, a change of subject or something like that. But it's not, it's not real. Now, Lord Bios, who, who, God bless him, and by the way, I haven't seen you for quite a while, Lord Bios, but Lord Bios was the guy who kept me out of trouble constantly during the COVID uh, pandemic, and it sure is good to see you again. Back in the days of the Chronosphere Lounge, I did 30 episodes daily on the first 30 days of the pandemic, and without Lord Bios, I would have understood nothing. Now I understand just a little bit more than nothing, mostly thanks to him. So, so Lord Bios knows what he's talking about. He says, memories are, quote, stored in the temporal lobe of the brain. Well, what that, if my understanding is, that means that we can identify where in terms of general area it is, but we can't, we can't find the equivalent of a, a, a RAM 
RAM is, is essentially just a, a, a magnetic field. You, pulse goes through it, it turns it on or off and saves it that way and so on. We, we don't seem to be able to find those things. No one can define consciousness. No one can tell you what it is. We don't, I've said this before, I think it's important to understand. It's not just a horsepower limitation in the terms of con consciousness. Our consciousness is so complex that we can't understand it. I wish I had that written down, that's really quite good. I really think that's it. Consciousness is so complex that we can't understand it. Think about that. Think about that. That's actually really, really remarkable. We have a system of storing data, recalling data, communicating data. We have an ability to effortlessly convert thoughts which no one can no one can tell you what a thought is this, see this is the part that's interesting to me because what i'm realizing late in life hopefully not too late in life but what i'm realizing is is that all of the things that i used to take for granted as just simple as this and that yeah life no problem we shoot a shoot electricity through the jupiter's atmosphere and it rains out amino acids which then forms rna and that forms dna and we get the none of it is simple none of it is anything like that simple and and when you really get down to the bottom brass tack you get to what is consciousness what's going on what's going on right now why am i doing this why are you listening to it um, Lord Byers says, well, the axons run on chemical gradients. It's like the combination of stimuli and learned reactions, but it's too complicated to say for sure without committing various crimes against humanity. Yes, but the, the, the locator of consciousness is not found, and I don't think it can be found. Now, now we're talking about some very, very, very bizarre speculation, and I'm not I'm not putting this on the market. Let me just say that. This is this is just stuff now that I'm looking at on the far horizon as I continue to walk along this path, trying to find data and evidence and make sure I'm going someplace real. I'm beginning to think that the brain is not where consciousness is, that the human brain allows you to access consciousness. It, it is a modem. That's what I think it is. I think it's a modem. I don't think it's a... a, a Big Vado memories and thoughts. I think it's a modem. Marisha Dark said, like a radio. Yes, it's it's a it's a. I think a modem is a perfect example. It's something that allows us to access something, and um, and I have had, I have had moments where. I have had perfect recall of the smallest details of things that happened 40 years. I mean, when I say the smallest, I mean the position of nails on wood that was nailed to a tree, so I could get up into the treehouse kind of thing. So, Tiki Rockets is something immaterial, like a soul, maybe. When you when you look at the, we talked about all these happy. Uh, I don't want to call them coincidences. Happy runs of luck that have allowed us to get here and talk about this. Jupiter doing its thing, the core doing its thing, the moon forming, the moon doing its thing, tides. Astronomy. Mathematics, all of it, right? But prior to all of that stuff, prior to all of that, is is the fundamental idea that the universe is constructed in such a way that we have things like stable matter. 
you change any of the variables of like the strong magnetic force, weak magnetic force, change any of them to any degree in the beginning and you don't have a you don't have a survivable universe. Just the fact that the universe is here, forget life, just what we're looking at out there in the telescope, is just that is, is exceedingly unlikely. Now, the anthropic principle says, the anthropic principle says that yes, it is exceedingly unlikely. And so is winning the lottery. Winning the lottery is exceedingly unlikely, but one person is a lottery winner every week. That's absolutely true, absolutely true. And, and so the, the argument would be, yes, the reason that we're here in this extremely unlikely universe is that is that essentially we rolled the the nine numbers in the right order and we won the big prize because if we didn't we wouldn't be here to talk about it and that has a certain logic to it but but you have to kind of just kind of like step back right because this is where i'm going with this and why i'm still struggling with it it seems to me it seems to me this is my whole life it seems to me that what we're doing is we are trying to find a pathway to get from nothing to us. And we are trying to find the weave through the laws of nature and physics and, and natural selection, all this stuff, chemistry, biochemistry. We're trying, to, we're trying to wind our way back to the Big Bang. We're trying to find a way to get from us back to there. Okay, and, and we're on this line, we're trying to figure out all the things that I've been talking about, DNA, all of this stuff is necessary for us to get back to nothingness, right? Okay, but if you step back far enough, if you step back far enough, you say to yourself, how likely is any of this? And the answer is, it's so unlikely that it's, I mean, the chance of it, the, the nearest round number is zero. The nearest 30 digits of, of uh, decimal places is zero. So I'm not saying that it didn't happen exactly the way that I was taught it to happen through science. at the I learned that at the University of Science. Maybe that's exactly how it happened. Maybe it is exactly how it happened. And all of these extraordinarily unlikely circumstances combined. And if they hadn't combined, we wouldn't be here to talk about them. That's, that's definitely a theory. But if you step back and look at it, you really start, have to start asking yourself questions about, oh, I'm not searching for God, Edward. I'm, 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 looking, I'm looking right at his, at his workshop. Uh, the, the degree of the miraculous is overwhelming. And this is why I'm having this conversation with myself. By the way, I've got people in the comments section, so I feel like I'm talking to them. I'm sorry, YouTube viewers, I know that's most of you, but really I'm having a conversation essentially with 10, 12 people here. But mostly I'm having a conversation with myself. I mentioned this a couple months ago. If, if somebody were to look in that door and I was unaware of it, they'd see some idiot talking to an inanimate object and having a conversation with somebody who's not there. And by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, and most of you are, you're not there in time. You're, you are watching this conversation at a, at a different time. So, assumptions, right? Assumptions. Things that we, that we just say and we accept, but we can't understand it. And, and I am now at the point 
where I'm starting to question things that I didn't question before, not in an unscientific way, but the opposite. I'll give you one last example. We'll move on. We'll do a couple questions. Uh, the, the Big Bang Theory seems to be extraordinarily well backed up by uh, uh, evidence, by observable evidence and so on. So we run the clock backwards, and what do we get? Well, we can get to a couple of smaller than milliseconds now. We can work. We can figure out the universe back to a few petaseconds or whatever it is from the Big Bang. We don't know what happened right at the Big Bang. But we do know what the definition of the Big Bang was. The definition of the Big Bang was a, was a, was a, a spot that was infinitely small and infinitely dense. That's how the Big Bang is described. It is an infinitely small and infinitely dense thing blew up. Okay, and, and the evidence for that is overwhelming. This is the part now where you have to start looking at the assumptions. They don't invalidate it, but they have to, but they have to be answered. Okay, so if, if, if all of the stuff we see is the result of, if we run the clock backwards, we get an infinitely small, infinitely dense thing, particle or whatever, how does it get to be infinitely small and infinitely dense? In other words, if it exploded, then what was keeping it from exploding before that? What changed? If it was stable as infinitely small and dense, then, then something changed, right? And if, and if nothing changed, then how did you get this infinitely small and infinitely dense event? How did it get there? Now you start getting into things like time and all the rest of that stuff. But seriously, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. This is where so much of this scientific arrogance comes from, where so much of this modern elitism comes from. And I know it because I've been there. It comes from this belief that things that are unbelievably complex and essentially unknowable are just tossed around like, like, like instructions on like an Ikea thing. Here's how you build the universe. Yeah, nothing to it, right? And let's do it. Yeah, just follow these simple steps, and, and and here you go. No, none of these steps are simple, and 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 none of them, none of them. Are even understandable, really. So at the very, 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 very least, we ought to be a little. And I'm talking about the the, the this is the minimum viable product for human thought, right? In my opinion, given what we know. The minimum viable product on, on people's opinion of humanity should be that we are extraordinarily unlikely, extraordinarily complex, extraordinarily miraculous creatures. And we really should be giving ourselves a better rep than what these clowns out there are trying to tell us or we're cancer on the planet and so on. And to put a bun on this and a bow on this and then, we'll, then we will move on into the dark, dark worlds of, of questions. Uh, <laughs> I saw the, the, the great thinker, the, the, the genuine intellectual uh, of our age, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, and I saw him on a, on a show. And it might have been the Rogan podcast, but I'm not sure. And Neil deGrasse Tyson brought out a, a, a print of the pale blue dot. And he told the story of the pale blue dot, which was all up to Carl Sagan. Marusha says Neil is awesome. Marusha was being facetious. I, I think he's just I think he's just an, an idiot, personally. But here's the evidence that he's an idiot. 
he brings up this print of the pale blue dot. So the, you, you Google search the pale, pale blue dot, and what you'll find is this. Voyager probe is heading out of the solar system. It's just past Saturn. Sagan descends from the clouds and says, hey guys, why don't we point this thing back at Earth? We can get a picture of Earth from Saturn, past the rings of Saturn. We'll be on the other side of the rings. So you take the picture. And sure enough, you see a little bit of, of a dust thing that's called the zodiacal light, which is the uh, little bit of dust in the ecliptic. And, and, and sure enough, this part's all true. There is a, there is a single pixel that is pale blue, and that is the Earth. And guys like Tyson come on the show and say, everything that we've done, all of the stuff that we are, is inside that pale blue dot. He says, we are utterly insignificant. We're absolutely insignificant. Anybody traveling through the universe would pass us by without a second thought. And then he said something that made me absolutely convinced. He just has just not a clue at all. He's saying what he thinks is smart, but he's just not a clue. He says, if, if intelligent aliens were to come to the solar system, they'd pass the Earth right by. The Earth is just a tiny little dot. They'd come and look at Saturn. Saturn's beautiful. And, and, and he kind of left it hanging there. And I'm, and I'm talking to the TV and I'm saying, we know for an absolute certain fact that there's got to be hundreds of billions of gas giants, you moron, and rings. We have plant, three planets in our solar system have rings. Gas giants with rings are common as hen's teeth. You're telling me that people are going to come to this solar system and they're going to look at Saturn and go, wow, and then they're going to leave? And they're not going to look at this blue dot? The blue is the miracle, you moron. That's the miracle. The blue is the miracle. Go for the blue. Why is it blue? Because there's water there. There's water. And what else is going on there? Well, there's an atmosphere. There's oxygen. There's, there's ozone. All of this stuff. What an absolutely moronic thing to say. And he said it because of two reasons. Number one, he said it because he's not a very smart guy and he wants to sound like Carl. That's number one. And number two, he said it because that is what we were supposed to believe, that we're just a little tiny little speck and just just a little pale blue dot and, and everything we live is, we're just, we're just absolutely insignificant. Don't be ridiculous, okay? That pale blue dot is what people would be looking for. That's what we're looking for. If somebody found the pale blue dot, They'd come a run into the pale blue dot and they'd pass 100,000 Saturns on the way. It wouldn't even slow down. And this is, what, this, is what we, this is what we absorb in the pop culture. It's in the pop culture. Now, Marissa says the pale blue dot is meant to be a call to human humility. And that's what Sagan did. He's constantly trying to say, we're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. You know, we're just a little tiny little particle of it and stuff. Well, you know what, Carl? Actually, looks like we are. Looks like we are the center of the universe. And this is the entire point of the argument. We are the center of the universe. They were right before. This idea that we're this that we're this little tiny speck among billions of other little tiny specks that are all like us, and there are billions of satellites, and I mean billions of civilizations out there. No, it doesn't seem to be the case. There's no evidence for it, and furthermore, there's evidence against it. And I've just spent the last hour trying to explain how unlikely this thing is, right? So we have had enough humility drummed into us now. If you ask kids on the street what they think about human beings, every one of them will tell you that we're a cancer on the planet and on the universe and, and that the earth is dying. We have to save the planet from ourselves because if we don't recycle this can, then the earth is going to die and all the rest of this. And they believe it. They believe it. Not going to get into the whole global warming thing, right? I'm not going to get into it because even if it's happening, even if it's happening, it's a question of, okay, CO2 levels go up. Sea levels go up, okay, but the Earth has been through 
50 times more than this, and the earth will correct itself. It is a self-correcting mechanism. But they don't believe that. They believe that we are in the process of killing this planet, and, and I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it, right? This thing is a miracle, and we are miraculous. There is, there is, there are so many astonishing steps necessary to create every single one of us that we should be cheering this to the to the rafters. It's not an insignificant blue dot. It's the most significant dot in the galaxy, maybe in the universe. It's the center of the, it's it's where the action is, man. It, it's it's where the action is. Everything else is dead. It's dead. Saturn's dead. Andromeda Galaxy's dead. The, the Orion Nebula is dead. There's nothing in the Orion Nebula that's half as interesting as a single bacterium. The bacterium is doing the bacterium. One bacterium is, is performing chemical miracles that that are utterly, absolutely inconceivable, and beyond the reach of of this cloud of dust out there that's so pretty. Right? This is all I'm saying. This is all I'm saying. I'm just saying we need to really readjust the way we think about ourselves as a species, and we need to give ourselves. Uh, some credit because the fact that we can have this conversation means that forget about the fact that we can have this conversation if we're all sitting in a bar someplace the fact that we have this conversation now the way we have it now what we have to understand about the electromagnetic spectrum what we have to understand about quantum mechanics what we have to understand about all of this stuff just to get the just to get the sound out of the computer into your ears for a for a for a you know, a bunch of, 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 of primates that were swinging from trees a quarter of a million years ago, it's a hell of a, it's a, hell of a thing, man. It's a lot of hard work. And, and, you know, we deserve a pat on the back for that, a big pat on the back for that. You know, what we are able to know is astonishing. It's astonishing. And the thing that we ultimately know is how little we know. And that lesson has not been learned by many people yet. So I just simply say, uh, I just simply say, I'm just awful proud to be a human. And as far as this business about being killer apes, I mentioned this maybe last show or two shows ago. I was disabused of that view of humanity. We're, we're the only warlike species. We're the only species that commits war. We're the only species that kills for pleasure. And blah, blah, blah. first of all, we're not. Dolphins, you know, the, the spiritual creatures that float around in the, in the cosmos just on the power of their own awesomeness. Dolphins, gentle guardians of the nation uh, of the sea dolphins kill the children of the previous father in other words if a female dolphin has got a baby dolphin and the father decides he's going uh, for this mother he'll just kill the infant same with lions and everybody else orcas kill for fun lady hawk says yeah orcas get a huge kick out of it they're slapping these seals through there like they're playing with a beach ball they enjoy it. And if you really, 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 really want to get scared enough to get out of this idea that we are somehow uniquely evil, take a look on YouTube and, and find the documentary on these killer chimps that basically hunted down other chimps and had war parties, flankers. They had, they had guys who were essentially driving the, the push. They had guys coming around the sides. They had expert guys who did the grabbing. And then they all came up and tore this thing to pieces. 
So really, really, if you really want to get down to it, we're the only animals that make an attempt to not do that. See what I mean? That's wired. It's wired. It's into us. It's wired into mammals. It's in mammals. It happens all the way, all, all throughout the mammalian kingdom. And we're mammals. And so we do that. But unlike these killer apes and these killer dolphins and all the rest of it, unlike them, we are at least trying to stop it. And most of the time we do. Virtually all of the time we do. That's why a murder is news, right? If, if, if we weren't trying to stop it, not murdering would be news. And I mentioned this professor. He said, he said, you know, this business about humans is back when they taught things at the universities, when, when you know, a university education meant something. I was in this room. Well, it was an anthropology class. And it was one of those giant things in, in uh, GPA, General Purpose Building A, giant brand new brick lump. And I was in an auditorium with 400 other people Sure, I had everything all all down, uh, and, uh, and I had all the answers, and just getting the degree, which I didn't get, by the way, is just a formality because I pretty much know everything. But this guy was talking about that view, and he said, if you take any other animal on the earth and pack them in as close together as we are all packed in here now, one of them will come out, and all the rest of them will be dead. And I thought, man, he's absolutely right. That guy's right. That's what a good teacher can do for you. A good teacher can give you something that you hold on to for your entire life, you know? It's, every time I hear people going down this road about how awful we are, it's like, we certainly do awful things. And our intelligence allows us to do awful things on a much larger scale. We're really the only ones that try not to do awful things. Mark Twain had never-ending contempt for humanity because humanity had the moral sense is what he called it. Humans had the choice to be evil. Lions can't be evil. Dolphins can't be evil. Only humans can be evil. And therefore, we are the lowest of the low. It's what he wrote about his entire life. Um, but the fact that Mark Twain is disgusted by this is what makes us uniquely cool. Yeah, and AKA Woody Fools got it, man. Who is looking for a cure for cancer? Dolphins? Right on. I often think I'd like to live long enough to see us deflect a, a, a planet-killing asteroid because I, I believe we could do that. I really do. I think it, I think that would, if we, if, what the hell, you know, I'm, I'm just on, I'm probably not gonna do any questions. I'm just not. Because uh, I'm on a roll and I have fun doing this. There are lots and lots of, there's, as far as asteroid impacts are concerned, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that there's lots and lots and lots of things out there that we don't detect. Most of these larger uh, asteroid impacts and stuff like the event in Russia uh, a couple years ago, we didn't know it was going to happen until a, an hour before. Most of the time we don't even know what happens until it happens. We pick it up what, with our satellites that are looking for rocket exhaust plumes for nuclear weapons. So the bad news is, is that yes, there's a lot of them out there and we haven't detected them and we probably can't. That's the bad news. The good news is, is that Chelbyanitsk, yeah. So that was, you know, that was great. Uh, 
but that was but the, but that that thing broke a lot of windows that Chelby I, you think I know how to pronounce something in Russian Chelbyinsk you, you all saw the pictures right large object I think it was I don't know 15 20 feet across something like that which is large for for a meteor which is this big enters the atmosphere at a high angle and explodes in the atmosphere much brighter than the sun Chelyabinsk thank you that's see that's all I need thank you infidel 42 if you could stay with me for the rest of my natural life uh, I would really appreciate it and that's exactly what I need Chelyabinsk so so <laughs> oh, that's that's worth repeating Richard Dark says broke a lot of windows and and Paul Krugman ordered three more yeah brilliant that's actually really brilliant and by the way, if you listen, everybody's seen the pictures. Not many people have have, have uh, heard the audio, but there is audio of it, and it's like boom, 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 boom. It's every one of the pieces making their own sonic boom. That was a relatively big event, and if that had actually hit the town, it would have been a bad day in that town. But that's not a that's not anything to worry about. It's not. I'm talking about mega things now. A little asteroid lands right on your head. You're probably as dead as you would be if a big one did. But my point is, it's not a threat to civilization. The bigger ones, the ones that can cause us real damage, are large enough for us to have detected. So we're right there. Tunguska, on the other hand, Infidel 42 says, Tunguska flattened hundreds and hundreds of square miles, but wasn't even close to being a threat to life on Earth. Chiluxalub was, though, and Chiluxalub was the size of New York City. Uh, and um, and so, all right, so uh, asteroids. Why was the hell are they talking about asteroids for? There was a reason for, for me talking about asteroids and all of this other stuff. What the hell is it? Um, oh, come on, Billy. It's lonely out in space. I don't know. Um, anyway. Uh, oh, yes, I, I remember now. Um, I would like to live long enough to see us deflect a planet killer. Because if that actually happened, and I think it probably will. I don't know if I'll live to see it, but, but just play with me on this. If there was a planet killer, a uh, Chiluxalub event, that would essentially wipe out all life on Earth, and we were able to prevent it, that would mean that every living creature on Earth would owe us big time. Big time. And I think we ought to look at that as a way to balance the books, right? We've done a lot of things to animals, and, and we spent the, our infancy in the Industrial Age making a lot of mess, and we still make a lot of mess, not us, but, you know, India and China still. And they'll, and they'll come along eventually, right? And the Earth will survive this. So we've done some damage to the Earth, but, but, someday, we will pay that back with interest. Someday, we will look at whatever damage that we've done to the Earth, which is essentially gone now. Plastics in the ocean is really about the only serious issue left. I saw a couple of days ago that the uh, coral reefs off of Australia are, are 
more vibrant than they have ever been, ever, since they've been looking. They've 100% recovered and, and are more uh, luxurious and rich than, they, than they've ever been. And then somebody said, well, it's the wrong kind of coral. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, so I, I just, I just kind of like that. And that's why I kind of wish it would be uh, us who did it too, you know. And it's like, it's like you want to talk about your ultimate, you know, FU card that you can just pull out at a bar, you know. It's like, uh, what's for dinner, you know, and walk into some five-star restaurant. I'd like a $300 steak, please. Who the hell are you? Oh, we're the guys that saved uh, all of this stuff and, 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 and allowed you to have children and draw breath. That's who we are. You know, you can thank us later. Um, so, anyway. Uh, there you go. Yeah, nature is amazing. Uh, and and you, you look at where the Exxon Valdez spill was, where everything was dead. You walk down the beach now, you can't tell where it was. Remember when they said that the that the um, the British petroleum leak in the Gulf would render the Gulf dead and the, the beaches unswimmable? Nope. Nope. I have seen, there. It gave great point, David Booty. Chillock's Love in Real Time is a great YouTube video. There's, yeah, it really is. There's actually, I think there's two. One of them is what, what it would look like. Here's what Chillock's Love looks like a month before the event, a week before, a day before, an hour before, and so on. Uh, one of them is like, watching of the course of an hour or two in real time. Here's the spread. Here's where the flash point of, you know, anyway, it's, it's great. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, Leola's uh, AOC says, it's the size of Texas, Mr. President. I'm pretty sure that that was from um, Armageddon, right? The one of the two asteroid movies, like one of the two volcano movies, that was the one besides uh, Deep Impact. It's the size of Texas. Um, uh, so, in order to blow up this thing that's the size of Texas, we're going to have to fly to it, and we're going to have to dig down several hundred feet. Right? We're going to, we've got something the size of Texas, but we're going to have to drill in order for this bomb to have an effect. How deep are you going to have to drill? Oh, 20, 30 yards at least. Okay. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I'd love that. I I I just love it to shut up the, the the liberals and the weenies and the progressives. You know, I just like to say, hey, you guys go out and just keep bitching about how awful we are, but you all owe us. You know, you owe us your lives, and and the fact that you are continuing to bitch about how nasty we are is due to the fact how awesome we are. So, kiss my, kiss my star spangled butt. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay. Um, what am I gonna do? been going we've been recording for an hour 22 you know i think i'm gonna chicken out on you guys i really am i'm sorry we did a four-hour show last week and i and and it was frustrating getting we we're 40 minutes late trying to get the computer fixed if i get into questions now i'm gonna i'm gonna be another hour or two and i just it's just i don't feel like it i'm sorry i just don't i do do feel very good about what we talked about though. i thought that was really fun um uh so um I actually finished it yesterday. I didn't get posted yet, but I did a video on the Mar-a-Lago raid called um, That's Who They Are. Thought it would have been posted yesterday, but hopefully it'll be up soon. Uh, it's sitting there finished anyway. Um, and then um, off we go. So, and and some new developments on, on the animation thing and all the rest of it. Uh, next, book, next time Facebook questions? Yeah, that seems fair. Sure, why not? Um, 
we'll do Facebook questions first next time. Um, and I'm not going to talk about uh, Liz Cheney's loss uh, because, frankly, I'm, it's just too soon. I'm so emotionally scarred by it. <sighs> that poor woman. That poor, poor woman who's given so much to be treated so shabbily. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I'll have one more thing since we've been talking about space, right? Somebody mentioned Artemis, Artemis 1. Is it still called the SLS? So Boeing... So, so the government hired Boeing to build us a moon rocket, just like in the Apollo days, and it's billions and billions and billions of dollars over budget. It's six years too late. They keep trying to launch it. They have to bring it back because the valves don't work or so on. Let me tell you what I think about, about Artemis. This is genuinely what I would like to have happen. I would like to have the Artemis sit on the pad, ready for the big launch, Three, two, one, ignition. And then I would just like it to essentially just run out of fuel. And that's the end of it. I, I want it gone. I have no interest in it. I have no, I, I, it's not only, I don't care about it succeeding. I don't want it to succeed. I do not want that vehicle to succeed. I think it's garbage. I think the Boeing, uh, uh, the Boeing capsule's garbage. And, and I don't want them to succeed. I think they, I think that, yeah, there you go. Uh, Coconut ED5 says, hooray for cost plus contracts. That's what you get. Endless cost and endless delays because that's what you're subsidizing. I hope, I hope it's simply, I don't want it to get hurt anybody, needless to say. I just want it to simply go. Because if it works, we're going to be tempted to use it for something. I don't know, maybe we need to launch a couple of pounds of solid gold into the into orbit. If it turns out, um, if it turn, thank you. If it turns out that it, it it functions, it's ugly as sin says Marisha. Yes, I want it to fail because if it doesn't fail, it's going to be in the way, and and Boeing is going to use its unbelievable political pressure to make sure that Elon Musk stays on the ground, right? That we would have been. Remember when they were flying Starship tests every week? Remember that year and a half ago? Yeah. Um, okay, well, wh why aren't they doing it now? Because the government, because the FAA is doing an environmental impact study. F, you guys, seriously, go away. This thing comes down and lands, you refuel it, you put it, just put the pump in there, fill it full of kerosene, off you go. Whatever you want to say about Musk and Musk, by the way, I know I, I get a lot of grief about this. Uh, is it not on YouTube? I put it up there. I will... If it wasn't made, I will I will check it. I it should have been up the day after. I uploaded. I wait for Scott to set it up because I can't. As it's uploading and it takes a long time, I cannot turn off the mid roll ads. I don't want mid roll ads. Uh, so I'll go check that and um, and turn that on. Um, anyway, I don't want it to succeed. I want it to fail. It deserves to fail. And um, Oh, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, I'm, I think Elon Musk is the only guy with the actual vision. I think he's the most important guy on the planet. And I think Elon Musk has libertarian tendencies. Uh, I don't consider Elon Musk to be a conservative. And I don't, I think the best way for me to describe my feelings about Elon Musk is I distrust him much less than any of these other elitists. 
only because of the evidence at hand. And the evidence at hand is he has a sense of humor. Sense of humor, especially self-deprecating sense of humor, instead of calling the catcher thing, you know, uh, you know, Artemis Niner, you know, we call it, of course I still love you. That's self-deprecating humor. That's a sign of some kind of fundamental humili humility and humanity. So I distrust him less than everybody else. Um, let's just let's just get these things going because he understands the scale and he's determined to do it. And and since he owns the company, he can do it. Nobody owns Boeing. Boeing used to be owned by Boeing by by a guy named Boeing, and Hughes was owned by Howard Hughes, and Northrop was owned by Northrop, and and Douglas was owned by Donald Douglas, and they decided they want to do something, they did it. Nobody, nobody owns these things anymore. Nobody owns them. My thing is beeping. Yes. Thank you, uh, CP Tomes. And thank you, GK uh, uh, Masters and all the other people. Uh, so anyway, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's time for it to go. Disney was owned by Disney. I am, uh, prior to the Mar-a-Lago raid, in fact, the day of the Mar-a-Lago raid, I was coming in to do um, uh, Moving Back to America called What Killed Disney. And uh, I've had to postpone it because doing it that day just seemed awfully trivial. And as I said, I finished the Moving Back to America on yesterday, uh, talking about this thing, because I needed to have the dust settle a little bit. But I'm going to come back and do that thing. Disney owns so many of the entertainment companies. There's only six or seven in the world. And why Disney sucks is real simple. The only revenue that is of any significance to Disney comes from China and BlackRock. And BlackRock is... Uh, BlackRock is, is uh, interesting. I saw uh, uh, on YouTube, as usual, just a regular citizen talking about these connections, and basically the guy said uh, that he showed video of the, the president, who I think his name was um, Montgomery Burns, if I remember correctly, and the, the, the president of this $10 trillion fund, which is the world's banker, he said, we need to be more socially conscious. We need to be more inclusive. We need to be more diverse. BlackRock is out there calling for woke content, and they are the ones who are, who are you know, you, you pay the piper, you call the tune. They're paying the piper. They're the ones that are keeping Disney afloat. So when BlackRock says we need more socialism, and their business is the most rapacious kind of capitalist financial manipulation, then something, something, something doesn't mesh here. It's enough to make a guy think that BlackRock has a reason for constantly calling for more social justice and more social responsibility. It's almost like they're trying to inoculate themselves, which is essentially what I talk about on the on the thing here. We, uh, you know, Jeb Texas says uh, we have monopoly laws still, right? Yeah, Jeb, the laws are still there. It's the, it's the people enforcing the laws that, that I don't see many of anymore. 
and I'll just close. Uh, <laughs> here we, we're actually getting pretty close. We might be actually over with the show in the next 20 minutes. I've said, here's the last thought for my eighth time now, and that's usually the, the cue. Um, Scott's, Scott had two right angle episodes this week, and one of them was, what does victory look like? He said, describe the world as it exists for you in your head uh, if conservatives were to win. Get everything you want. What would, um, what would it look like? Uh, and he said, or, or is it just, is it just America without those guys? And I said, that's exactly it. You'll never stop. Rust never sleeps. Entropy's on their side. But yeah, that's what I, that's what, that's what, that's what I make. That's when I realized that's what the colonies is. The colonies is America without those guys. That's what it is. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's America without those guys, you know, without all the mask-wearing weenies. You know, we're the curse of the planet, and global warming is going to kill us all. We got to save the planet by eat our algae cakes, and you know, and 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 you know, and oh, we're going to have to grow crickets for the protein, you know, paste that, that we're going to be eating. No, I'm going to show people what it looks like if you have America without those guys. And it's a really, really cool place. And this comes nicely, I have to say, I wish I told you I'd I'd plot this on purpose, but basically this comes full circle to what we started off in the beginning. And I mentioned this on the the virtue signals that we shot. What happened? What went wrong? What went wrong? What the future that I believed in and that I was sold and told was coming changed in 1967, 68. What happened? Talk about it on the show, but basically, these, those guys showed up. And and all of the things that we do now that make us look like we're living on the most ridiculous and evil timeline imaginable is a result of us. When I say us, it's a result of those guys. It's a result of the critical theory, which is the result of the Frankfurt School, which is a result of Marxism, which is the religion of those guys. And And the extraordinary success of America was it was a place where people could get away from those guys for a couple hundred years. Now we grow our own those guys. And so, yeah, I, when he said that, I realized that's essentially in the, exactly what excites me about this project is, is it is a, it is a, a look at what you could, what we could be and what we could do if we just didn't have those guys and I don't want anything bad to happen. I just want them to get what they're asking for on a little island in a dome on the far side of the moon. I don't want anything bad to happen. I just want them to I want them to have their identity politics and all the rest of it. I just want it to be over there and I'm going over here. That's the nice thing about space, by the way. That's the main thing about space is that space is really hard. It's a very, very, very hostile environment. And space is a place where those guys would have a very tough time getting there. Eventually, people like us will make it so safe that those guys will again crop up. But at least on this one, if you can, that's a frontier that never ends. You could almost say it's the final frontier. Oh, okay, great. Uh, TSL is there. That's that's great. I'm glad to hear it. Um, all right, that's it. Uh, so anyway, let's um, 
Yeah, let's all imagine a world without those guys. Just for a week, be amazed what it'll do for your blood pressure. It's absolutely astonishing. Uh, this particular show and all the other shows uh, in the past and, and in the future as well, uh, which are equally real to this moment, which is already gone, um, are made possible by the uh, paying members at BillWhittle.com, who I didn't get to again today, but my uh, deep apologies about that. That's the, the things that we try to do. And uh, we are grateful for them every week, and we grateful for them every show. And, and every time I pay a bill, I think about how many members that particular check took. So uh, thank you, all of you, for that. Um, so yeah, Dave Big Booty nails it again. See you all next week. Same bill time, same bill channel. Hail Vectron and, and Hail Doomcock. And, uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's not let those guys steal our awesome.